0: Pray with me, if you will. Father, I ask as we approach this text, um, yet again, I pray that we would derive from it what you want us to hear, and that the questions we ask from the text would honor you. And they would help us understand how we are to be, and how we are to think, and how we are to feel towards you. Pray that you would give me the right uh, tone, the right uh, attitude, and the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. If you're willing in this room, if you would just pray for me, the words would be given to me that I would speak as I ought to speak. And if you're willing, pray for yourself that you would be able to hear and obey what the word of God says. Father, we love you and we trust you. And I ask that you would do with this time what you will. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was an elderly gentleman. who worked for my father that was for us kind of a third grandfather by the name of Ken Joyce. And he was actually my father's RA teacher, if any of y'all are familiar with the RA program. And we would often come to the office to clean the office. We were the maintenance boys uh, from my dad's office. And we would go into Ken's office and tell him about things that were going on in our lives, and often we would tell him a story about how we survived some peril, you know, kids going up on a farm, jumping out of trucks, horses, goats trying to kill you, all that sort of thing. And one of the things he would say frequently was this, well, the Lord takes care of the simple, and you qualify. So (laughs) I did not plan at all in my sermon planning to get to this text with this question on Mother's Day, I promise. So the fact that the question we're asking, how are husbands to exhort wives, that had nothing to do with me seeing in advance that this was Mother's Day. So the Lord takes care of the simple, and I qualify. (laughs) Again, happy Mother's Day. I want you all to feel blessed, not just the mothers in here, not just the women, but everyone to feel the special nature of this day. And hopefully as I go through the text, and the place where we're going from that text is uh, to answer our question, I pray that you would all see the glory of what God has done in creating us male and female. So, our question as we, uh, let me just read our main text again, and I hope by the end of this Series, this mini series within a series, that you have this passage memorized. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have all come to share in Christ, if Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the question we're asking, we've, we've asked a couple of questions so far in our emphasis on these three verses. How do we exhort one another? Well, it's anyone and everyone. That's what we talked about last week. We exhort everyone through prayer. We begin by prayer. We exhort every one of us, each other, because of the resurrection. So these have been each answer's as we've been trying to ask the author of Hebrews for some clarity around what he means when he commands us to exhort one another. So the question I'm asking on all of our behalf today is how can husbands exhort their wives? And even in asking the question, I'm making a claim that there is something the Bible has to say in answer to that question. And it's not just me going to books or other resources or studies or research from secular universities to answer the question of how husbands ought to be towards their wives. I'm going to the Word of God. I'm not an expert on anything I'm about to say to you. I've only been mar- We will have been married seven years, Beth and I, This come this June. Most of you who are married have been married longer than us, and most of you who are parents have been parents longer than us. I don't come to this as an expert saying, here are the things I've learned. Well, I'm a super pro at being a husband and a father, so let me tell you what you should do. Especially to the men in this room. I want to say my authority is not based on personal experience or even my own knowledge. I come to you as a member of an ancient order. The order of Noah, of Moses, of Isaiah, and Ezekiel, of John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul, to name a few. The faithful members of this order, regardless of age, regardless of marital status, regardless of number of children or life situation, they have a deep and resounding commitment And a terrifying responsibility to speak the words of God to the people of God. And yes, God does speak in the Bible authoritatively and sufficiently. To instruct husbands and wives how they ought to relate to each other. And that's an audacious claim. And it slaps in the face the pride of modern psychology, research and books that tell us what marriage is and what it means or doesn't mean? So yes, insofar as I speak the words of God and give the sense of the words of God to you, the people of God, then set aside all biases towards me or my life resume or lack thereof. And you, insofar as I'm speaking what the word of God says, as it speaks to you husbands particularly, you have an obligation to listen to and obey what I'm saying as much as if God were to appear in this room and say it to you. Ladies, don't let me offend you with this. And you're not passive in this. I am speaking to men today, primarily husbands. I hope that doesn't offend you. It is your day. It's Mother's Day. So preach to me, preacher. Next week is how wives can exhort their husbands, but I hope you will see God's providence in today being particularly directed towards husbands of how they can exhort you. So first we need to connect this passage, Hebrews three twelve through 14, to this question. Husbands exhorting their wives. As I said last week, and as we did last week, we are hypothetically asking a question to the author and demanding answers. Last week, we asked the same kind of question that the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? When you tell me, author of Hebrews, exhort one another, who do you mean by one another? And his answer to us was, as we saw in the text, one another, everybody. Not those who are just in your life stage or those who are the same gender as you or the people who have the same view as you or just your friends. Exhort one another means anyone and everyone. This week, we're asking a more nuanced question, a more specific one that will take us to other places than this specific text, which I don't generally like to do. I prefer to be expositional or verse by verse and not introduce different ideas or fill in the gaps with big sections of other texts, because then that lets me set the agenda of what's being said instead of the text. But I think there is a reason to do this, because I do think the author puts so much weight on this command to exhort one another that it's fair for us to say, all right, Author of Hebrews, I'm a husband or I have a husband. How should he or how should I exhort my wife? Let me ask it in a longer way. How, author of Hebrews and Holy Spirit, should the husbands among us exhort their wives every day so that neither the husband nor the wife is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? And for the rest of us, how can we help husbands exhort their wives? That includes you young people, you kids. How can we together help the husbands do what the husbands are supposed to do in exhorting their wives so that neither are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? This is the question I'm trying to ask on all of our behalfs of this text. A few things before we proceed to answer the question. Husbands are supposed to be exhorting their wives. Just let that be an accepted premise for you. Husbands are supposed to be exhorting their wives, and husbands must be about the work of exhorting their wives. If husbands Don't exhort their wives. There will be significant spiritual breakdown in the home. If the wife is not exhorted in the ways that she needs and she goes elsewhere for spiritual exhortation or she won't go elsewhere to the God-ordained way to make up for the husband's failure... And so she will go on unexhorted and in all likelihood led further and further away from the Lord. If we believe what this text is saying, then we are all at risk from falling away from the living God because we can deceive ourselves and we can let sin have such a stronghold in our lives that we can trick ourselves into believing that we are on the path of holiness, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And we won't hold firm to the end. And even if you arrive safely and you're still a Christian at the end of it all, and you've made wreckage of your life, the the imagery Paul offers is that you will be saved, but as through fire, your entire building of what your life was about and what you did just burns. And I don't want that to be any of your story. And I want this to be, this day in particular, to be an occasion for pain or more resentment or sorrow. And I know that many are dealing with, this, with situations in your life that are hard enough. And this day might make it more difficult. Grace abounds in situations where there's a husband who doesn't know Jesus. A husband who has passed away. And so I'm not saying those of you in here, the wives among us, who don't have a husband who is exhorting them, that you're out of luck. I am saying this is God's preferred way, if you have a husband, to make you endure. And there's something for this for everyone, regardless of your situation. All I'm saying is it's really important, husbands, if you have a wife, guys, that you exhort her in the Lord. Don't be like Lot, guys who was sufficient or or maybe happy in his own righteousness and his knowledge of God, but didn't take care of his wife to the point where when they were told to flee from Sodom, she looked back. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. Right? Both pursuing ungodliness and greed together together and Ananias' responsibility in that family would have been to say, no, we can't lie to the Holy Spirit and both of them died. Be like Cornelius, who so feared God and so sought God's favor that God drives Peter essentially tells him to go to Cornelius's house a Gentile and his whole household is then saved be like Job who was so careful that any of his children might have committed a presumptuous sin and he's making sacrifices for them and they don't even know about it be the spiritual leader of your family be like those men and don't be like those other men and stories like this abound. And the insights from them abound as to how we husbands should exhort our wives and we don't have time to go to them mall. So my task was to decide on one particular story to give us insight into how husbands ought to exhort their wives. If you remember several weeks ago, the author of Hebrews says this, and he's quoting Psalm 8. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him the son of man that you care for him you made him a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet this psalm is a reflection that david has probably just read genesis and the creation account and he's reflecting theologically on what's going on in that passage so I mentioned when we discussed this passage that the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the Son of Man not in the sense that Daniel introduces the Son of Man but in the sense that Adam was the Son of Man uh, and the first man, right? And so Jesus comes as the second Adam according to Paul in Romans 5 and he does what Adam failed to do. He is the perfect man. He endured temptation in a much less idyllic situation. And the story I use kind of as a, as a thing to hang your hat on to understand how this is, it's sort of like Arthur and the sword in the stone. Jesus, when he arrives, the race of man was fallen into ruin because of our first parents. And no one was worthy and no one was able to take up that mantle and lead the race of humanity back to God. The sword lodged in the stone and Jesus comes and takes it out. And he's able to lead us and to lift that banner and take us all together to the Father. So he's worthy to be the Son of Man. He has been given the authority, put everything in subjection under his feet. So Genesis and the creation account is in the author's mind in helping us understand who Jesus is. So that is why I spent those few minutes there explaining the justification for why I'm going to the place we're going to, which is Genesis 1 through 3. We're not going to read all three chapters. We're going to select a few verses out of this to get some insight into what it means for husbands to exhort their wives. So I hope that doesn't feel jarring, and I spent a few minutes to justify the leap from Hebrews 3 to Genesis 1 through 3, but I think it is in the author's mind, and I think it is warranted. So, if you would, we'll spend the rest of our time answering this question of the author of Hebrews in Genesis 1 through 2. And everyone else in the room, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say it again. I'm primarily speaking to the guys in this room, the husbands. But there is something for every one of you in this room in what I'm about to say. There's a lot for every one of you in what I'm about to say. And I'll explain some of that so you don't have to fill in the gaps yourself at the end of it. Okay, so just hang with me. We're going to start in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let him them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. And over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So, first, oh, I'm sorry, let me read verse 28 as well. And God blessed Adam, had blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. First husbands to exhort your wife, you must treat her as your equal before God in honor and dignity, both male and female in the image of God. This is the first recounting of God's creation of the human race and both Male and female in the image of God, equal in glory and honor and dignity before God. The roles are different, okay? And we'll get to that. The husband is meant to lead and serve and love, and the woman is given to help, submit, respect, and love. But that does not mean that the woman is any less in the image of God. We're even called co-heirs with Christ on equal footing in the new creation, according to Peter in 1 Peter 3, 7. If you see your wife in any way as lesser than you, less than you in any sense, you cannot begin to exhort her in the right way. You cannot begin to view her on equal footing with you before the cross, which is absolutely necessary in order to help her endure. It makes us humble And gives a better, more appropriate feeling for how serious it is that we men have been called to lead. We're not called to lead someone who's in any sense inferior. We're not called to lead someone who is lesser in understanding power and glory. Indeed, you are called to leave and serve a daughter of the Most High God. Who will also sit on the throne with Christ. You were called to lead and love her in a way to exhort her in the special way that only you can. So that she does not, as the author in Hebrews says, fall away from the living God. That is a heavy burden, and you have to see it that way, someone who is on equal footing. You've been called to lead someone who may even be smarter than you, right? It's sort of like it is with uh, being a pastor of a church. I've never thought that if I ever became a pastor that I would be the most spiritual or most mature person here. But in God's providence, I'm the pastor. And so I'm called to lead and serve. That doesn't mean I'm more inherently qualified than anyone else sitting in this room. It's just this is my responsibility. That is how it is for you husbands. You've been given this role. To lead someone who's on equal footing with you before the cross and before God. Second, to exhort your wife, take the initiative and lead the charge in making your life about the kingdom of God. How do I get that from this text? So God gives the man and the woman what we call, what the, we theologians call the cultural Mandate fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over all the creatures of the earth. That's the cultural mandate. Go out and have a lot of kids, and they'll have kids too, and have dominion over the world. That cultural mandate gets subsumed into the Great Commission for us because Jesus is the second greater perfect Adam. If Adam had never sinned, then we would just be continuing that cultural mandate, having authority over the world and exercising dominion over all the fish of the sea and the creeping things. But now that Jesus is the second greater Adam, he gives us the great commission. Go. and Tell everybody and make more disciples for me. Adam's failure is corrected by Christ's victory. And instead of the emphasis primarily or only being on physical children, we're to emphasize the new birth and seeing people become Christians. What tends to happen, especially us husbands, is that we focus solely or primarily on survival and comfort. One of the two or maybe both together. We're just trying to get along. We're just trying to make it to the next paycheck. We're just trying to make it through. Husbands, it's your responsibility to reject, as the leader, the tendency towards sloth and self-serving goals in your family. We know from the next chapters that the woman was created because there was no helper fit for Adam to do what God had given him to do. And so only insofar as you set the agenda for what God desires from all men, not just Christians, His command is that everyone everywhere worship the sun. And so you husbands have a unique responsibility to set the agenda, the long-term plan of how we, our family, how we're going to do that. And this is not something that you can change in a week or a month. And I better not hear that, well, you know, after you preached that sermon, he basically came and told me he's got a 10-year plan to move us to Africa, and uh, we're just pursuing that now, so thank you for that sermon, Joshua. Um, so don't, don't let, don't tell, if that's your plan, don't even tell me. So, um. <laughs> But you do need to decide what is our family going to be about, and it has to be more than just making it, just survival. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 7, and also 15 through 17. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skip down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Third, husbands, to exhort your wife, treat her with you humility. You are dust. And to dust, you will return. You're not impressive in the grand scheme of things, and neither am I. You're just not. God is not impressed with you. You may be surrounded by fools at your workplace that make you think that you're something special, but you're not. Even Paul, we are but unworthy servants. You're not given this task to exhort your wife because you're awesome. And if you make it to where you think you are or that you're in some sense God's blessing to your wife and the way that she's going to endure is through you only, then you will either make her completely depend on you or she'll reject your attempts to try and help her because you'll be doing it in pride. The anthem of anyone trying to exhort anyone, but especially husbands exhorting wives, is Jesus is the one you need. I am nothing. I am dust, and to dust I shall return. Jesus is the one you need. Fourth way, husbands, to exhort your wife. Take hold of and treasure the commands that God has given you. God tells him, you can eat of any of these trees, but of this tree, don't eat. And we don't have a corresponding account of God telling both Adam and Eve directly the command against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He just told, as far as the text is concerned, he just told Adam. And what we're going to get to in a few verses is to see how Adam, in a sense, had to break down in his communication of those commands to his wife. You must know and love your Bible and not because of your own theological hobby horses. You must know what the Lord requires of you and your family. Do you find yourself thinking about the Bible? Do you find yourself passionate about some theme or strand of thought that previously you had missed? Do you try to process the problems of your family and issues you face through the lens of God's commands to you? You can't be passive in this, guys. We're going to see what happens in a little bit when the man is passive or perhaps even overzealous. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. I'm sorry, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. way, husbands, to exhort your wife. Remind her and honor her as the one that God has given you to enable you to fulfill the commands and the tasks that he has for you. Let me explain what I mean here. This is very important. God looks at his creation, everything else, good, good, good. This isn't good. Man alone. He's given him a task to fulfill. And the indication is at least that in fulfilling the commands that God had given the man to do, that it wasn't going to work long term, him being by himself. He says not good. Though I usually don't value studies, but I did see one because of the egalitarian movement. uh, This one study where the majority of women surveyed said that they didn't really think that women in general needed a man in their lives. But the vast majority of men surveyed said that they thought that they needed a woman in their lives. The bad way of viewing this is, see, you're here to help me. Look at Genesis, right? I needed to do this. God saw I needed help, so he gave you me. So you help me with what I'm trying to do. The idea only works when the man is leading like we saw above in a kingdom-focused way. Here's the right way to view it. I am completely inadequate to do this alone. I need you as God's helper suited for me to obey him. Thank you for making this possible. So rejoice as Adam does. He sings. You might say to me, well, you don't know my wife like I do. She's not really helping me. It's more of a, a bother. It's difficult. I can't rejoice like Adam does. That might be more indicative of a failure on your part to figure out how the Lord would have you love and lead your wife. And just a side note to the wives before we get to some notes for you guys. Don't let cultural, secular or fundamental or traditional values define what you want what you think femininity is. This here is the glorious foundation for what womanhood in general means. The man is to initiate in obedience, but built into, it's not like God was surprised that it was going to be not good for the man to be alone. He designed him in a way to show his inadequacy and need for God. And the way that God responds to that inadequacy is to send the woman, introduce the woman into his life so that she can come and finish out or complete what man was supposed to do. To use the analogy of a home, I think it's a fitting analogy, you might not like it, but the man initiates and starts the project, surveys, maybe builds the foundation and puts up the studs and maybe some sheetrock. But it's not a home at that point. You can't live in that. And so the woman comes and finishes out, completes, paints, gives furniture, cabinets, color, light, beauty. Makes it better in a way that we just can't. The woman is to come and improve upon and make beautiful what has begun. To assist the man so that he can even do it in the first place. And this is how we're to lead men. We're supposed to give that space to our wives to come and finish out and complete what we're doing as we seek to obey God. Sixth way to exhort your wife, you must hold fast to her and be one flesh with her, exclusively in mind and body and heart. And I want to expound here too much for the sake of many Of the age groups in here and I am by no means an expert in this area. However, as I said in the beginning, the Bible has much to say on this important area and I'll just leave it here and I want to exhort every married person in this room to read and memorize and embrace the truth given by, of course, all the verses in scripture that deal with this important matter of being one flesh with your wife, but especially 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5. If you don't embrace it, if you don't really believe that that applies to you and it shouldn't change the way you relate to your spouse, then you need to, to really come face-to-face with God on that issue that you're rejecting this truth that He's given to you. Maybe one day we'll have a setting to talk more at length about this topic, but for now I'll leave it here as an exhortation to the husbands to make this area of your life with your wife a priority and figure out how you can be a servant and show selfless love in this area. Okay, chapter three, one through seven. of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths 7th guys men husbands exhort your wife by taking initiative be a man and stand in and speak the truth of god and only the truth of god and regardless of how she responds walk humbly before your god in obedience To understand what I'm saying here and what I'm trying to preach to you, we should ask this question. What should have Adam done? What should he have done in this situation? He's just standing there, listening to the lies spewed by the serpent and takes the fruit. What should have Adam done? First, Adam became, in a sense, metaphorically, the first Pharisee. He should have been a faithful representative of what God had commanded, but he added to it. He made a rule about the rule that God had given. Don't eat it or touch it. And men, what can happen, especially those of you who are maybe more type A, is that we will add to the word of God expectations that we have for our wives, and that can be soul crushing. Don't do it. It might be reading a little bit into the text, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that Moses intentionally showed that what Adam was commanded is one thing, and what Adam gave to his wife was a different thing, and that created perhaps a resentment in Eve's heart towards God. Not even touch it? That's a little extreme. And so you, husbands, are given the task to faithfully communicate the word of God and only the word of God and only bind her conscience by the things that you can sufficiently prove are directly from the word of God. Second, regardless of what he had said to the woman before, Adam should have spoken up and owned up and represented God's truth in that moment and called his wife away from the ledge and been the first to step out and flee temptation. Not, what did I tell you, woman? Didn't I tell you that we're not supposed to even touch this? He should have said, here's what the Lord says. Third, he should have maintained his integrity and not sinned along with his wife. We don't know what would have happened if Adam had not sinned and Eve only had sinned. 2 Samuel 6 might give us a clue, but there is little use in speculating. What we know for sure is that Adam should have not sinned. And what can happen in your relationships, guys, is... When the woman in your life, when your wife sins against you in a certain way, you think that gives you license to respond or retaliate in the exact same way. And the missiles just fly both directions and there's ruin and fallout. It doesn't matter who's sinning against you or how they're sinning against you. You maintain your integrity. to exhort your wives, husbands, next. Look to things above, things eternal, things that do not fade. I'm not saying here that women are tempted to love or desire physical things more than men are, but because, women, you are more beautiful than men, how pride and vanity are expressed for you in your lives sometimes is an attempt to hold on to that beauty and that glory. Vanity of all types waylays both men and women. But I do think there is in this she she desired the fruit. It was beautiful that the things, the alluring things of this world appeal in a particular way to her. Adam should have said, so what if it makes us more wise? So what if it makes us pretty? So what if it's delicious? God is better than all of that. And we can trust his character, that he is good. And what he has for us is the best thing for us. Husbands, exhort your wives as you lead by example to not look to the physical things or to physical beauty or the preservation of the physical, but to the things that are eternal where Christ is seated. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. To exhort your wives, husbands, take responsibility and own your failures. And God shows up, he asks, where are you, Adam? And then Adam shifts blame. We won't spend a ton of time here because this should be obvious for most of you who have grown up in church. You probably heard a lot of good preaching or teaching on this topic. What Adam is doing is just trying to shift the blame. God, look at this situation you put me in, God. Look at this woman you gave to me to be with me, to help me. Look at what happened. Take responsibility and own your failures. Don't Point fingers or play the blame game. Take responsibility and lead. And you're not alone in this. Lean on the Holy Spirit for strength to live this holy life. Tenth, to exhort your wife, be reconciled to God. Wash yourself first with the word. All right, If you go to Ephesians 5, he says that Jesus... Is like our bridegroom for the church his bride, and he washes the church with the water of the word. Before you can do that, husbands, you must wash yourself with the water of the word and make sure you're following Jesus. Make sure you've been born again. Verse 14. The Lord said to the certain serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To exhort your wife, husbands, show her the hope of the gospel compliment her sure but telling your wife that she's awesome and amazing isn't going to cut it when she has a miscarriage or if she's infertile or when she gets cancer or when you fail her the serpent crushing hero has come And this mess that's been created by Adam's failure and Eve's failure, our first parents, the one who has been promised to come and make it all right by crushing the head of the serpent, has come and crushed the head of the serpent. To exhort your wife, you have to point her to this great hope. The serpent has been dealt with in the holy wrath of God against our sin that caused us to need to be driven out of paradise has been satisfied, and he will come again, and he will right all wrongs. Romance is beautiful and necessary for true human flourishing, but if that's it, if all marriage is, is just making each other feel nice and fuzzy feelings in each other, then we're just long, drawn-out love stories that don't really have any meaning. And that does not satisfy the soul or make you endure when things are hard. To exhort your wife, you need to be able to connect her situation and the difficulty that you're both in together to the gospel. Connect it all the way back to this, that the curse and the brokenness and the shame and the guilt and everything that plagues our lives that began on that day has been dealt with on the cross and will be finally Finish and taken away in the return of our great serpent head crushing hero. Next, to exhort your wife, understand that the very thing that she is most gifted in and suited to do is the very thing that brings her the most pain and frustration. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire desire shall be contrary to your husband. And he shall rule over you. So the very thing that women are given specially to do. To bring life into the world. Is the very thing that's going to bring her the most frustration and pain. And men, this can happen. We can view our wives as, well... You're better suited to take care of the kids, and you're certainly willing to, and you certainly delight in doing so. And we can stand idly and passively by and let them drive themselves into the ground, making their children their idol. And you must stand in between your wife and her and your children and prevent her from making her children her idol. The very thing that she has been specially suited to do in bearing children and raising children and giving life and bringing nourishment and finishing out and making it happen is the very thing that brings her the most pain and frustration. And the counterpart is true for us guys as well. And we'll get to that next week. I would read it. We don't have time. Luke 2, verses 25 through 35 when Simeon comes to... Mary, And he says, and a sword will pierce your heart as well. That even in the coming of the Messiah, you'd think it'd be easy and it'd be happy raising the perfect child, but even in that pain, sorrow. We will... Follow our first father's sinful example and sit passively by. All in the name of the good of our kids. Mothers, you are not your children's Messiah. Again, as I said before, the anthem should be Jesus is the one you need. Last uh, few here and we'll, we'll be done. To exhort your wives, you must realize that it's not going to be easy and it's not going to go exactly like you want it to most of the time, husbands. I won't spend too much time here because we're going to spend the majority of our time on this topic. To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring out for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Men, we are given the responsibility from before the curse to lead out, to take the initiative, to start the trajectory for kingdom-seeking things. We're to lead our wives, to bless them, to exhort them. But this curse, our part of the curse is that when we try to do that, it's going to often blow up in our faces. And it will, as one of my previous pastors said, war against us as we try to do what God has given us to do. So Don't become frustrated when you start to try and serve your wife and lead your wife in these ways that I've spoken to you today. It's probably not going to go well. The majority of the time. And I don't want to end there on that negative note. Many of you may have not heard this passage explained in this way, but verse 20 and 21. This is immediately after God gives out the curse to the man. We don't know if there was any time in between, but Moses, who wrote this, connects it here immediately. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. To exhort your wife, husbands, do this by grace and speak to her in faith. Receive the garments to cover the shame. God has done much in your life. Part of it in belonging to this church. Part of it in the friends that surround you. Part of it in the friends that you have. The family that you have. Your story. God has done much to give you garments to clothe your shame and to make things easier for you. And us guys typically reject much help. I got this. That's a demonic idea. You need help and you need God's grace. You need the garments and the means of grace that he gives you and surrounds you with to help you be the leader of the man you're supposed to be. Speak, and, and we also see this, and I'll, we'll shift to the final exhortations here. Speak in faith to your wife, Adam, right after the curse, he, ge- he changes his wife's name. Previously, she's just called woman. In all, the, in all the chapters leading up here, it's just man. Adam is actually just a transliteration of the Hebrew word for man. Man and woman. That's all we have up to this point. So Eve is actually the first proper name for a person in all of human history. And it means life giver. And he says... I'm going to call you Eve because you're life giver. You're the mother of all the living. This is before Cain was born. So right after the curse, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of receiving just and at the same time merciful punishment for their sin, Adam has faith in what God has commanded them. We're going to still do this. We're going to still obey the commands that God gave us. You're the mother of all the living. God is faithful. God is still good. We're going to still do this. And on Mother's Day, I hope this is an encouragement to you. Before Eve is ever a mother, she's called mother of all the living. So what I was speaking about earlier in the biblical nature of femininity, this is what it is, that you can be motherly and feminine in your disposition towards all creation in that finishing out or completing or making better or improving upon, that is what it means to be a biblical woman, not just in the roles and the responsibilities you have to your husband and your kids. This is the opportunity for you. So regardless of where you come into this room and how painful or how happy Mother's Day is for you, this is biblical mothering. And it precedes having children. So look to God in hope. God is still good. God is still merciful. We should still obey him. That should be your message to your wives, husbands. So, just a few final exhortations. I've been speaking to guys basically exclusively. I've been speaking to everyone, but especially to the husbands in this room. To wives, I'll just give you one. We're going to spend all of next week on how you can exhort your husband. But I'll just give you one today. Be patient with us. A lot of guys may have a devil-may-care attitude in their marriages. Like, well, I don't know. Like, yes, me, I don't know. Or I'll let you decide. Most of us are not very good at this, at all the things that I've just explained. Most of us don't have hardly any idea of what we're doing. And your part to play is to be gracious and magnanimous in that moment and to be patient and not lead us, but to show us the way by your patience and by your well-doing in that relationship. To all the kids in the room, thank you for hanging with me for all that. I know that might have been sounded long. But I want you to realize that you hold significant power in removing frustrations to lessen the pain of the curse on your mother and father by your behavior. I'll tell you one short story on this. I was probably five or six years old. And when you're a family of, we, there were six of us at the time, getting ready for Sunday morning was always difficult, right? And we went to a church where everyone wore a bow tie or a tie, so getting all dressed and ready in that way for church, it was, it was a project, right? Mom would start the day around four or five, Sundays were hard. And so we had a family meeting, right, on Saturdays. Like, we we can't do this anymore. It's too hard to get to church. What do we do? And I just raised my hand and said, I guess we could find our shoes Saturday night. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Kids, think of simple, easy ways to lessen the burden of the curse on your mother and your father. You hold significant power. And most of you know exactly things that you could do to make it easier. I know you're smart. I spend Wednesday nights with you, and I'm with you in the prayer. I know you're smart. I know you know what could help your parents. To the unmarried, I apologize for speaking so much about marriage and principles of marriages, and you may think that not much of this applies to you. Um... But it does. And you, with your unique perspective, if you're you're after a marriage, like if you're not married right now and you have been, know that your wisdom and your experience through the difficulty and the joy can be offered as gleanings for those of us who are still trying to figure things out. If you're single and would like to be married, this is preeminently for you. Women, Young ladies, this is the kind of man you should strive to look for. And young men, this is the kind of man you should want to be. And this is why I have no interest in condoning aimless dating. Sure, he's cute and makes you laugh. But is he going to do these things for you? If not, then he has no business in asking for your affections, exclusive or otherwise. This is the way you should think about yourself. What does it mean biblically to be a woman? And what does it mean biblically to be a man as you try to approach that time in your life where you would give yourself in marriage? To the (coughs) non-believer. Jesus gave humanity marriage so that we would understand how he relates to his church. So in everything I explained about what husbands are supposed to do For their wives. Jesus does perfectly for his bride, the church. And in the way he loves us, we look to him as our great example. And his invitation of love to you, even today, is an offer of love from the very Son of God. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'll say it a hundred more times do not spurn the love of God. If today you hear his voice and his offer of love, do not harden your hearts. Even in an explanation of what husbands are supposed to do for their wives, you have seen a clear picture of what Christ does for his church. And even in hearing that, he has made his offer to you. If you find yourself and you have not trusted in Christ as of today, let today be the day of salvation. Come and find me or one of our deacons and we will lead you in the way of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we confess that great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And I pray that we men in this room, those of us who are husbands, would allow ourselves to be called up to this grand, glorious and terrifying responsibility we have to exhort our wives, your daughters, to make it home safely. And I pray that the wives in this room, the women in this room, the mothers in this room would feel a special grace. And as I have tried to exhort their husbands to be the men in their lives that they're supposed to be, I ask that you would warm their hearts and ask that we would all just trust in you. There's no way the husbands in this room can do the things that I've explained or the wives can respond appropriately to those husbands doing those things without your grace and without your spirit. And I pray if there are people who do not know you, that they would see a clear vision of what Christ has done for his church in this message and that we would all look to our great hero, the one who crushed the head of the serpent and look with hope towards his second coming. I pray these things in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.